Amen. We started a series in John's letter, 1 John, and it's right near the end of the Bible, near Revelation, and I'm going to read out uh, chapter 4, verses 7 to 21. Is that right, PJ? Good. Let's read these out. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one's ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is brought to full expression in us. And God has given us his spirit as proof that we live in him and he in us. Furthermore, we've seen with our own eyes and now testify that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. All who confess that Jesus is the Son of God have God living in them, and they live in God. And we know how much God loves us, and we've put our trust in his love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect, so we'll not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence, because we live like Jesus here in this world. And such love has no fear, because perfect love expels all fear. If we're afraid, it's for fear of punishment. And this shows that we've not fully experienced his perfect love. We love each other because he loved us first. If someone says, I love God, but hates a Christian brother or sister, that person's a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? He's given us this command, those who love God must also love their Christian brothers and sisters. And a good friend of our church, PJ, has driven all the way from Bristol to come and speak to us today. Come up, PJ, and I'll pray for you. PJ was one of our first trustees at this church and uh, a friend of ours and uh, a long-term resident of this area it's uh, wonderful that he's here today to speak to us. Lord, we thank you so much for PJ. We thank you for this message that you've given him. Thank you. We don't want to focus on hate and fear. We want to know and understand and experience your love more fully. Lord, give us ears to hear what your spirit is going to say to us through PJ to our church today. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Right. Give me 15 seconds just to sort myself out. So if you want to stand up and uh, cool off. Good, it's, um, it's lovely to be back with you. It's particularly nice that I have the opportunity this morning to be preaching to two of my sons-in-law. It is very hot, so if you fall asleep, uh, that's fine. If they do, they're going to cop it later. Yeah. It's good to be back. I come in here. Dion led us beautifully in worship. Where is she? Thank you. And I always find myself welling up 
being quite tearful when I come here. And I think it's because there's a part of my DNA. Well, there is, I suppose, literally, but a part of my spiritual heritage because I was in this part of London for about 25 years. And so it's, um, I come back here and I have this, I know that many of you don't know me, but I know many of you and I have a very deep affection for you and I pray for you every week because you're that precious to me. Okay, um, my prayer, my prayer for you this morning is that you would know the love of God, but also that you would experience the love of God, okay? You would know it in terms of understanding it, but experiencing, experience it in terms of feeling it for yourself, and that's been my prayer for you. Um, I don't know how you get on with John's letter. I find John's writing really quite difficult. Does anybody else find it quite difficult to follow where he's going and what he's doing? Not many. (laughs) If you follow Paul, Paul has this sort of progression. He begins an argument and he develops it and he begins to explain where he's going. But John, it's rather like an abstract picture And you've got all these colors and textures and different themes. And then you think, well, John, you're going all over the place. But after a while, when you step back and you just look at those themes, it begins to form this beautiful, beautiful pattern and picture. Okay, why did John write this letter? This tract. Does anybody have any idea? You should do, (laughs) because you preached last week. Okay. The church in the first few centuries came under colossal challenges. One of the first challenges that the church came under was is it possible for a Gentile to be a Christian? And there were many Jewish Christians who said, no, this is not possible. And it was a major challenge as you read through the book of Acts. And then the challenge was, well, if they become Christians, they need to become Jews first. And then the church seemed to get through that problem, but then another challenge began to arise within the church. And uh, John refers to, uh, in John 2, he talks about some guys have arisen from within us, and they are beginning to challenge what we believe and what we know to be true. And these were the forerunners of the Gnostics. How many of you know what Gnostics are? Yeah, about three of us, because I had to look it up. I had to look it up. The Gnostics, they were creeping into the church. And these were men and women who said, well, we don't actually believe that what goes on physically in the world, flesh and blood, is of much importance at all. It's all spiritual. And to come to God, you've got to have this deeper, higher knowledge. And unless you've got this deeper, higher knowledge, then you can never really know God. And they took their understanding of God. And what they said was that probably Jesus Christ, probably he was never physical. Perhaps he was just some 
kind of spiritual being that came, of God, came from God. And it created a real stink within the church, which is why John begins this letter by saying, we have touched, we have, we've smelt him, we've heard him, we've listened to him. This Jesus really did exist. He really was there. He wasn't some spiritual experience out there, but he was flesh and blood. We've seen him. We've touched him. So the Gnostics said, there's nothing, there there are no consequences to what you do physically. How you behave is of no consequence. It doesn't really matter as long as you've got this deep spiritual experience and understanding of God. Which is why John comes back again and again and again. And he says, listen up church, you've got to love each other. You've got to love each other. And loving is something which is very, very practical. It is a behavior and we're going to unpack that a little bit more. Right, where are we going? Should I have the next one? Right. We're going to think a little bit about what is God's love. We're going to think about the expression of love in Jesus Christ. Because it's only when we look at the person of Jesus Christ that we can begin to grasp and understand and know exactly what the love of God is. And then the last one is in defense of fear. We're going to think a little bit about fear. Now then, I had preacher's block You've got to teach to these guys. These guys are here at Forest Hill. I hear and I understand that you are one of the best taught churches in London. Is that right? Yeah. Just remarkable. You've got people here who've got degrees in theology who are teaching you. You know, you just, you are, and I thought, what on earth? What, what new can I tell them, God, about you being a God of love? So I preacher's block. So I'd like you to turn to your partners, particularly if they're falling asleep, and I'd like you to ask them, what has been the most special expression of human love that you have received? Okay, you have got 30 seconds, and then I'm going to ask you, what is love? What is the warmest, richest, deepest expression of human love that you've experienced? Now, you may be sitting next to somebody you don't really want to talk about those sorts of things. But that is the challenge. Okay, let me ask you, what is love? What is love? As Luke gently, sensitively puts his head on Ruth's shoulder, there is love. (laughs) I saw you. (laughs) Okay, a few ideas. Come on, be brave. Love is patient. Sacrificial. Kindness. Selfless. Believing in somebody else. Voluntary, love is kind, truthful, it's not easily angered, it's not boastful. We've all read that stuff in 1, uh, in 1 Corinthians 13. We've all been to weddings. It's a beautiful description of love, isn't it? 
Now, you all know, because I know that you're well taught, but the New Testament was written in Greek, and in Greek there are four words for love. Four words for love, very quickly. There is the love that you have within a family. Kinship, storge, it is in the Greek. So this morning, my lovely daughter, you know, she gave us beautiful breakfast and Father's Day gifts, and, you know, it was just lovely, that kind of family love that we enjoy together. Then there is... The friendship love, filio. Who is your best friend? Why are they your best friends? Because you can share with them. You're close, filio. Then, of course, there is romantic love. And we had a little demonstration from Luke and Ruth just a few moments ago. Eros. And then there is the love which you get, more predominantly in the New Testament, that selfless love that we see in Jesus and in the Father, and of course, that is agape. So, four loves. Okay. I was with a, with a lady recently. This lady had Christian parents who had served in Christian ministry, and I spent a long time with this lady trying to help her. She has a husband who has been involved in Christian ministry for a long time. But this woman had such an image of herself that she... She questioned, actually, and this is a lady in her 70s. She had been in church all of her life. She questioned whether God actually loved her. Whether God was love. And she had been hurt. She'd been let down. She'd been betrayed. God had been badly misrepresented to her. But I was so grief-stricken that here was a woman who had been in the church all her life, and she was in her 70s, but she had never known the love of God for herself. And it was a sobering lesson to me, because I guess there are some of you here who say, yeah, yeah, God is love, but I'm not sure, actually, that he loves me. He not that he loves me. So we're going to think a little bit about this. We need to get on. Love is an emotion. We feel it at times, physically within our bodies. Love is an attraction, an attachment, an attitude of thinking, and it is demonstrated in behavior. That all comes from my dear friend, Wikipedia. Let's think about God's love. 1 John 4, verse 8 and verse 16 says that God is love. God is love. God is love. Now, that doesn't mean that he's occasionally loving or that he just feels loving from time to time, but that he is always continuously loving, loving. You can ask Sue, you can ask my daughters. There are times when I can be wonderfully loving, compassionate, sensitive and serving. But there are times when I am, to put a spiritual term to it, a grumpy old fart. And you don't want to be around me. Because I'm not very loving. But God is always loving. It is in his nature to be completely loving all of the time. He is motivated by his love. He is, it is the primary, the only motivational force within his being because he is love. It is impossible for God not to be loving. It says in the Bible, and we see it from time to time, that God gets angry. But God is not anger. God is not anger. 
the Bible gives us the impression that God hates becoming angry. He doesn't want to be angry because he is love. But what I would say to you is that when he does get angry, anger is an expression of his love. Anger is an expression of his love. We could say a lot more about that, but we won't because it's a bit confusing. A love that always seeks the best for others. Now, I'm sure Bev told you last week, 1 John 1 verse 5, that God is light. God is light. And I'm sure she talked to you about the fact that light refers to holiness and righteousness and his purity. And so you get this wonderful, wonderful picture in 1 John that God is both loving and God is light. But it's not as though God is loving over there and God is light over there. God is those two aspects, his holiness, his purity, the light, is all enmeshed within his love. So they're not two separate entities. God is light. Love is dependent upon his holiness. It would be unloving of God not to be holy. It would be unloving of God not to be holy. Okay, so what does this mean for us? God is love. Matthew 10, verse 29. Jesus said to his disciples, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very hairs of your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. So, how big is your God? How big is his love? Let's try and quantify this. What's his capacity? Could you put the next one up, please? Thanks. A few numbers for you. A few numbers. The top number there is 100 billion. In the universe in which we live, the Milky Way, there are between 100 and 400 billion stars, our star being just one of them. The next figure there is 2 trillion. They reckon that there are 2 trillion galaxies in the observable region of the cosmos. And each galaxy will have between about... 100 and 400 billion stars. Makes you feel quite small, doesn't it? God, it says, made all of those stars and that universe through the person of Jesus Christ. Says it in John 1. Says it, Paul says it in the book of Corinthians. The writer to the book of Hebrews says that. That Christ was present and formative when God created the two trillion universes. Wow. Do you know what the best thing that he created was? Man. We understand from the word of God that this was the pinnacle, the best thing that he made. So 7 billion, 432,000, no million, 600 and 663,275. What does that refer to, that number? Population of the world last year. So there might be a few more than that now. 
Now, what I find remarkable is that God being love, that God is so great and so vast that he is constantly attentive to those seven billion people all of the time. It's not as though in heaven he has this remarkable call center where he has a thousand angels dealing with Europe for prayers and then a thousand angels in another call center dealing for prayers from South America and so it goes on. No. Jesus said he's counted the hairs on your head. He knows the thoughts running through your mind. He is constantly attentive and focused on you all of the time. And he is loving. And God is indeed very great. Very great. How many people do you know? I know about, I don't know, I thought maybe a thousand, maybe less. How many of those people can I be intimately involved with? What is my capacity to love? A handful of people. And my capacity very soon falls short. Sue, who's looking after her granddaughter, is a teacher. And she teaches 29 children in her class. She has enormous difficulty actually holding the attention and working with 29 six- and seven-year-olds all at the same time. How many people, Nigel, are there in Forest Hill, in the congregation? Yeah. 200, yeah, I thought it'd be about 200. And I want to tell you, you've got the A-team here, haven't you? You've got Nigel and you've got Jenny. Oh, Sam, 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 yeah, as well. But I guess there are some of you here who from time to time think, hey, don't forget me. Don't miss me out. Nigel, have you got time for me? God loves each one of us all of the time. Okay. Sorry. Getting carried away with myself. Here we are. Yeah. The other thing I thought about this was is that also God is somebody who feels. God is love. He chooses to be loving, but I also believe that God is emotional. He acts habitually in a loving way, but he also feels. We know that he feels love. We know that he feels anger. And the Old Testament is, is, is full of lots of different images of God's love. But it was only when Jesus came that we began to really grasp the nature of his love. So God's love is volitional. He chooses to love, but it is also a feeling and an emotion. And maybe I'm, I'm grappling with theology that I don't understand here, but I think that God is multi-emotional. That God has that capacity not only to know us, but to feel towards us in different ways. So there will be times when God might be rejoicing with you. God, Nigel, might be just a little bit cross with you. And Luke, he's thrilled and he, he delights in you. God feels different things towards each one of us. 
but all of his feelings, whatever his feelings, come from the fact that he is love. He is love. Okay, so how, how do we understand this love? I've already mentioned that we see God's love expressed in the person of Jesus. And John says this twice in this passage. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. That's verse 9 and then verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So we know the love of God by grasping the person of Jesus. Because Jesus, his love was both volitional and emotional. Should we go on to the next one, please? Thank you. Okay, I spoke to you here in November 2012. Um, I'm just wondering if you can remember what it was that I spoke to you about. I'm very disappointed. We were talking about bereavement and grief in actual fact, and we read from John 11. Mary and Martha had sent word to Jesus. They had said, the one that you love, Lazarus, is unwell. Please come quickly. We need your touch upon his life. And the word there for love is filio. Your dear friend is very poorly. And then John says in John 11, in verse 5, he says, Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And the word he uses there is agape. Jesus delays for whatever reason for a few days and then he makes the journey of a couple of days to Bethany where Martha and Mary and Lazarus were. And by that time, Lazarus was dead. Jesus walks into a grief-stricken family. The two sisters are distraught and they are both angry. They both say the same thing to him. They say, Lord, if only you had been here. And Jesus says, where is he? Where is he? And Jesus then goes to the tomb. And it says in verse 33 that Jesus was deeply moved. This is a really interesting word. It's often a word that is used for a horse snorting. It comes from deep within the person. There's that sense of groaning or indignation as Jesus looks at the tomb. And then Jesus looks at Martha and Mary, both in tears, and then he sees the crowd. And what does it say? It says that Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? I don't think, actually, that he wept because Lazarus was dead and that he lost his good friend. I don't think that because Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do and he knew that within a matter of minutes, Lazarus was going to come out of the grave. No, I think actually that Jesus looked at the impact of death, the sting of death on this family and on this community and he groaned because he knew that that was why he came. But his tears and his groaning was an emotional expression of his passion and love. Okay, let's move on. Luke 18. A few days later, probably just a week later after the rising of Lazarus, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. Do you remember the story? 
And he tells two of his disciples, go and get uh, a colt and its foal, and I'm going to ride on them. And they go and get this, coal, uh, this colt, this, this little pony or whatever it is. And he, he gets on it, and the disciples start laying down their, clo- their cloaks. And suddenly, there's this wonderful, spontaneous carnival. You know, it, it, it just, you know, it's, Notting Hill comes to Jerusalem. Just fantastic. And there's lots of singing and lots of jubilation because this is the coming of the king. This is the coming of the king. And um, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come out and they're very angry because Jesus was being very political and very provocative. He was fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah. See, O Israel, that your king is coming, riding on a colt, riding on a donkey, Why would you choose to ride on a donkey? But Jesus fulfills that. And so it was a very provocative statement. And the religious leaders said, tell these people to be quiet. This is outrageous. This is dreadful. And Jesus, I think with a laugh, he said, if they were quiet, even the stones would cry out. But then, in just a few minutes later, his disciples notice something. They look at Jesus, and what do they see? They see tears running down his face. In the midst of this party, Jesus was weeping. And they hear his words, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I love you, if only. And he comes out with these words of prophecy over this city that was heading for destruction. And Jesus was so, so saddened by that. A week later, of course, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. Love is both emotional and volitional. We read about Jesus in Gethsemane. There he was choosing to love but he did not feel love in his body. There, at that point, everything within his body said, no, 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 I cannot go through with this. This is more than I can bear. But Father, not what my body says to me, not what my emotions are saying to me, your will. I want to follow you. I want to be obedient to you. And that is why it's really important to know that God's love, the love of Christ, is both volitional, choice, as well as being emotional. And that's why Jesus says in John 13, he says, I'm giving you a new commandment. Elaine, I want you to love the people around you. I want you to love your family. Sam. My command to you is that you love the people of this church, that you love them. Now, a command is something that has to be obeyed. Sometimes we don't feel very loving for people in our families or people in our churches because we are all sorts of shapes and sizes and we often do things that really upset people. And loving is tough. It's hard. And that's why Jesus says, I want you to make it a choice to love. Okay, in summary then, before we think briefly about fear, can we go on to the next one? God is love, 
He is always loving and motivated by his love. His nature and his essence is always to be loving. He created the vastness of space because he was motivated by love through the person of Jesus. Jesus, within his humanity, demonstrates that love by the way he lived and by the way he died to each one of us. It was the choice of his life, but also the emotion that he feels, that he feels. I'm going to have a commercial break here. No, we're not. Yes, we are. Now, if you, like me, you failed your 11 plus, how many of you here failed your 11 plus? Yes, a few of us. Great. I'm an 11 plus failure. These books, this series of books is for us who failed our 11 pluses. Tom writes, he's written a whole series on all, all the books of the New Testament and Old Testament as well, I think. And, but they are so good, so easy to read. You know, the other book that I got out on 1 John was by John Stott, and it was in-depth. It was for people who had theology degrees like Shunu and Sam. And Does anybody else have a theology degree here? Oh, yeah, Luke does as well. I was surprised, actually. <laughs> and a master's. Okay, thank you. <laughs> but these books are so accessible. They're not word-by-word Greek exposition, as you get from traditional commentaries. These books are really accessible and easy to read with little anecdotes, but it brings the scriptures alive. Really, really recommend them. Okay, but he talks in that book on 1 John, he says, we need in the church a reformation of love because too often too many people have been hurt within the church. Okay, let's say a little something about fear. John says in chapter 4 verse, are we okay for time? We're all right. No, okay. I'm now in fear of Nigel. There is no fear. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Oh, John, if only that easy. Ooh, how many of you here ever experience fear? Well, we've got a few chaps there who never have experienced fear. Yeah, just, yeah, fantastic. Could you put the next? Oh, oh, you've done it. Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed. Okay, so what are you afraid of? I am afraid of preaching. I hate it. What are we afraid of? Spiders, mugging, flying, open spaces, being closed in, being rejected, embarrassed, humiliated, left out. I can remember as a teenager just dreading being left out on the side. But what is fear? Fear is a response. Humanly speaking, it's very protective. So when there is fear is perception of some kind of danger or threat and our body responds, it, it triggers that sort of fight and flight response in us. It's a deep feeling. We feel it in our bodies. It's a really unpleasant feeling that you have. I was sitting over there before having to get up and preach and I felt, I hate it. You feel anxious and worried. Fear is really unpleasant. We want to get rid of fear. But also, fear, and this is the most important thing, fear has to do with the way we 
perceive things, the way we perceive things. Father's Day. When Harriet, my youngest, was 10, we had a daddy and, daddy and daughter's day. That's right. We went to Thorpe Park. How many of you have been to Thorpe Park? few of you. How many of you have ridden on Colossus? It was there 15 years ago. I can remember going to Colossus. Colossus is this thing that twists you around with I don't know how many G-forces and it's just no way, Harry, I'm not going on that. But she nagged me and nagged me. This is at the beginning of our afternoon, our delightful afternoon. Of, no, I don't, I can't go on that. Daddy, please. So I thought if I face my fear and I get over it, then that's going to be great. I said, all right, we'll go, we'll go, we'll go. Stop nagging me, stop nagging me. Great Daddy and Daughter's Day. And it was a good ride. Wow, it was over very, very quickly. 30 seconds after this ride, I thought I was going to die. <laughs> One minute after this ride, I just wanted to die. I felt so ill. But I had overcome my fear. So the rest of the afternoon was me going from bench to bench and lying down and feeling sick and tormented. Whilst Harriet Harriet went on all these rides. Great day. Okay, but John isn't talking about a roller coaster ride. Who was the first person in the Bible to feel fear? Might have been Eve. Might have been Cain. Genesis 3, verse 10. These are the words of Adam. I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid. What did Adam hear? The voice of God. Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? I can't find you. Now, whether you believe it literally happened or whether you think it's allegorical, that story is so profound. It is so profound to what we've been thinking about, the fact that God is love. God is love. Adam and Eve rebelled. They, they, they rejected God's command. And if you read the passages, it's, it's just lovely. It's Adam just, he gets so worked up and so angry, and he gets angry with God, and he says, God, this woman that you put into my life is her fault. So it's your fault for giving her to me, and it's her fault for doing what she did. He doesn't take responsibility. It's a wonderful dialogue of the way that men behave, I think. But no longer, as God walked through the garden, was God a loving father. He was a tyrant bent upon punishment and retribution and dread and terror and fear filled their lives. But that is not true. God had not changed. God was and God is love. But their perception of God had changed Adam and Eve had been made in the image of God and the image of God had been corrupted and polluted and distorted and broken. And what is that image? I want to suggest to you that a part of that image is the fact that we were created in relationship. We were created out of the fact that God is Love. And love doesn't dwell on its own. Love dwells within relationships. The father loved the son and said, this is my son who I really love. The son loved the father and the father loved Adam and Eve. And suddenly the uniqueness and the purity and the joy and the wonder of that love that they enjoyed was utterly and completely corrupted. And that is why humanity 
is so screwed up today. Now, I do believe, I do believe profoundly that mankind has the remnant of the image of God. You look at what happened in Manchester. Look what happened in West London this, this week. Such expressions of love and of giving. And we see this again and again and again. But also we know that there's the capacity to hate and to fear and for great evil and depravity in my life, in my love, life. Okay. For Adam and Eve, God was merciful. He took the rabbit called Thumper and he killed it and he made skins to cover their shame. And at the heart of their mercy was the provision of Christ coming to redeem mankind and to restore the image of God. And John, in uh, John 4 verse 10, he calls this the atoning sacrifice. Jesus died so that we could again receive and take on that image. That is why I believe profoundly Knowing and experiencing and feeling God's love is the most healing experience as God restores his image and reintroduces his nature to us. What is so interesting with this passage, so mind-blowing, is that John is saying that God's nature dwells within you, Nigel, because God is love. And that is absolutely remarkable. Now, I know it's a bit of a battle sometimes. Nigel probably has a bit of a struggle sometimes loving some of you. And vice versa. But actually, that is the promise that God wants to do. That God is restoring that image within our lives. Verse 16. We close with this, then we're going to pray. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. Thank you very much indeed. Okay, let's, let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God of love. You created the vastness of this universe in love. You created man to be in a loving relationship. You sent your son, Jesus, to restore that image to those who would love him and receive all that he gives through that atoning sacrifice. Love is challenging, Father. We don't always find it easy to take off our clothes and wrap a towel around our feet and wash the feet of the people around us. Love is costly. Love is sacrificial. Help us to be great lovers of you. Help us to be great lovers of Jesus. Help us to be great lovers of our brothers and sisters. Okay, I don't often do this, but if you want to receive more of God's love into your life now. I'd just like you to stand. There's no pressure. You don't stand because everybody else is standing. But if you genuinely sense, yes, I want to know more of God's love in my life.
Father, thank you. We pray. We pray that your spirit would come and that each one here would know more and more that they are so deeply and wonderfully loved by you. Pour out your love into their lives by your Holy Spirit. Give them greater capacity, renewal of love within their lives, to love husbands and children and parents and neighbors, to love each other. And uh, we simply pause and say that we worship you and we love you. Amen.